Good morning to each and every one of you. Pleasure to be back with you. And as always, a privilege to open uh, God's Word. There's a, a famous short story entitled The Bet, written by a man named Anton Chekhov, I believe was his name. And in this short story, the, the two main characters, a lawyer and a banker, have a discussion, or an argument, a debate over uh, which is more humane, the death penalty or solitary confinement. And the banker argues that uh, the death penalty is far more humane because death is quick, whereas solitary confinement brings about death slowly and uh, over the course of years. The lawyer objects. He says uh, any life is better than a no life, even solitary confinement. And the, the banker is, is annoyed that the lawyer would challenge his position. And basically says, I will give you two million rubles. This is Russia. It's worthless today, but in the 19th century, uh, two million rubles, uh, quite a lot of money. I'll give you two million rubles if you will spend five years in solitary confinement. And the lawyer is confident that he can do it, no problem. He says, I'll spend 15 years. Two million rubles, 15 years, solitary confinement. And so 25 years of age, the lawyer goes to live by himself, sequestered, secluded, guards watching the door. They would put his food in through an opening. And he was allowed any literature, any books, any music, anything like that that his heart desired. And so over the course of 15 years, he set his mind and heart to studying human wisdom. And so he began with the classics, the great three of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all the way up to his day. He mastered several musical instruments. He mastered several languages. He studied all the great works concerning mathematics, science, philosophy, history. And the, the list was endless. He amassed this great wealth of knowledge and insight. Well, it is the day before, the night before the 15 years is up, his release. The banker is broke. He had wasted all of his money. His investments had gone sour, had gone south. And so he realizes that the next day he's going to owe this man two million rubles. He doesn't have it. He's going to be disgraced. And so he decides to sneak into the man's room in the middle of the night and murder him and frame the guard. And so he secretly, quietly opens the door where this lawyer is sequestered. He goes over to the table where the lawyer is leaning with his head down on the table, sleeping quietly, softly. And there on the table before him, before murdering the lawyer, he sees a letter. A letter addressed to him, the banker. And in this letter, the lawyer stated the following. Tomorrow at 12 o'clock, I shall be free. But before leaving this room, I find it necessary to say a few words to you with a clear conscience. And before God who sees me, I declare to you that I despise freedom. I despise life and health and all that your books call the joys of this world. For 15 years, I have studied attentively the life of this world. All that had been achieved by the untiring brain of man. During long centuries is stored in my brain in a small compressed mass. I know I am wiser than you all, and I despise all your books. 
I despise all earthly blessings and wisdom. All is worthless and false, hollow and deceiving like the mirage. You may be proud, wise and beautiful, but death will wipe you away from the face of the earth as it does the very mice that live beneath your floor. And your heirs, your history, your immortal geniuses will freeze or burn with the destruction of the earth. You have gone mad and are not following the right path. You take falsehood for truth and deformity for beauty to prove to you how I despise all that you value. I renounce the two million on which I once looked as the opening of paradise for me and which I now scorn to deprive myself of the right to receive them. I will leave my prison five hours before the appointed time and by so doing break the terms of our compact. And the banker quietly left the room and the next morning at seven o'clock he watched him from his window as the lawyer snuck out of the room, climbed the fence and simply disappeared from view. This morning, I beg of you, keep that story in mind and keep the words of that young lawyer before you, ever before you. All is worthless and false, hollow and deceiving like the mirage. And with that story clearly in view, I invite you to turn with me to God's word to John chapter seven. We've been looking at this chapter, this particular portion of God's Word for several Sundays now. We're going to complete our study of it today. You will remember, I hope, that there are three scenes. The first scene, Christ's absence from the beginning or from the start of the feast. That's the first 13 verses of John 7. His brothers want him to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. They want him to make a show of himself in order to gather a large following. Jesus refuses. He makes it clear, my time has not yet come. And so he will not. He refuses to go up in the manner that they desire publicly. Christ's absence from the start of the feast. And then we have the second scene, verse 14, right through to verse 36. Christ's appearance in the middle of the feast. He does go up secretly. And he begins to teach in the temple and his teaching provokes or stirs this huge debate focusing on three issues. First of all, his authority, the authority by which he teaches these things. Secondly, his origin. Where has he come from? Thirdly, his departure. Where is he going? And then there is the third and final scene beginning in verse 37. Christ's appeal at the end of the feast. And so follow along. Pay careful attention to the words of this portion of God's word. As I read them for you, I pray that the spirit of God will will drive them home, impressing them upon us. God's word declares on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? That goes right back to verse 32 where the Pharisees sent these officers to arrest Jesus. Now the officers return. The Pharisees want to know, why did you not bring him? The answer, verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, remember our friend Nicodemus from John chapter 3, who had gone to him, that is to Jesus, before, and who was one of them, that is one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so, it is the last day or the seventh day of the feast. What feast? It's the Feast of Booths. On the Jewish calendar, there were seven annual feasts, seven feasts which they celebrated each and every year. The Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, was one of these seven feasts. And the the Jews would come from all around. They would gather in the city of Jerusalem. And for seven days, they would celebrate this feast. And as a big, significant part of this feast, they would construct for themselves these little tabernacles or these little booths out of branches, tree branches. And they would live in these booths, in these tabernacles for seven days. Hence the name for the feast The Feast of Booths. Well, it's the seventh day. It's the last day. It's daybreak. Not a cloud in the sky. It's October. There's a chill in the air. The people awaken. And as they have done on the first six days of the feast, they immediately make their way to the temple to gather this great throng, this great multitude, this great crowd of worshipers on the last, the great, the final day of the feast. And upon arriving at the tabernacle or the temple, they break into three groups. One group remains at the temple to prepare under the direction of the, of the priests and the Levites the morning sacrifice. The second group goes to a part of the city known as Moza, where they collect willow branches. And they return with these willow branches to adorn that great brazen brass altar where the sacrifices are offered up to God. The third group is involved in this procession down to a part of the city known as the Pool of Siloam. 
And they are led by one priest who has in his hand a golden picture. And upon arriving at the pool of Siloam, this priest dips this golden pitcher into the pool, gathers up, collects this water, and then leads the group in procession back to the altar, back to the temple. And once at the temple, he is joined with another priest. And this priest has in his hand another pitcher full with wine, filled with wine to be poured out as a drink offering. And these two priests together ascend the steps of the altar. And the smoke is arising from the sacrifice, ascending to God. And there on the west side of the altar is a funnel. And there on the east side of the altar is another funnel. And the priest who has this water from the pool of Siloam proceeds to the west of the altar The other priest who has the wine, the drink offering, proceeds to the east of the altar. And then at the same time, they pour out the the water and the wine into these funnels and down upon the altar, upon the sacrifice, and they pour them out before the Lord. And once they have poured out this water and wine, the congregation joins in song, in singing what is known as the Hallel. H-A-L-L-E-L, Hallel. And the Hallel consists of Psalms 113 through to 118. And the priests and the Levites would lead them in this great congregational singing, this festivity as the smoke from the burnt offering arises, as the water is poured out, as the wine is poured out. They join in song, singing this Hallel. And the Levites would begin and the Levites would sing each verse from Psalm 113 through to Psalm 117. And after each verse, the people would respond, praise the Lord. And then they would come to Psalm 118. And the Levites would continue singing each verse of that glorious psalm. And in response to each verse... The people would cry, save us, we pray, O Lord. Can you picture that scene with your mind's eye? Let the imagination run wild a little bit. There stands the temple in all its grandeur. There is that clear, pristine blue sky. There is that chill in the morning air. There stands the altar, pivotal in the history of this nation, now beautified, covered with these willow branches. This priest has returned from the pool of Siloam. He has ascended the steps with the other priest who has the the drink offering. And as the smoke arises and the aroma fills the air and that cloud ascends, the last drops from that water and from that wine cascade down upon the altar and the sacrifice. And there is that great cry, that joyous celebration. And then the final words from their singing, the final words from the Hallel resound through the air. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Dead silence. And then all of a sudden, there's this lone cry coming from somewhere. This still voice breaks the silence. And the voice echoes above the crowd, echoes before the very temple itself. Void of all anger, void of all bitterness, void of all malice. 
pulsating with love and with compassion and with meekness. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That, that ought to make your spine tingle. If it doesn't, check your pulse and make sure you are still in the land of the living. Here we have the voice of Almighty God. The voice of God incarnate before this great throng, piercing the silence in response to that cry, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And as the smoke ascends, and as the droplets of wine and water drip and are found cascading down that altar, he cries. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And do you know what is amazing? That cry, that, that, that declaration, that invitation echoes throughout the centuries right down to the present. And the Lord Jesus cries this morning, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I want, I so desperately want these words to resonate with us this morning. I want them, I want us to grasp them, yes, firstly with our minds. I want us by God's grace, by God's Spirit for us to feel them in our hearts. And so what I'd like to do, what I'd like to lead us in this morning is this, this meditation upon this great cry. And I want to break it down for us into three little bite-sized pieces that we might just take them and, and think upon them and meditate upon them and arrive at the full significance of these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So take the first piece, the first bit, if you care, and meditate with me upon these words, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, uh, three questions I want to ask this morning of that statement. If anyone thirsts, the first is this. What is this thirst? What is it that the Lord Jesus is talking about? At the outset, let me state the obvious. It's not a physical thirst. We think of an individual lost in a, in a desert land without any source of of water or anything else to drink. The lips are parched. The tongue is parched. Tremendous, terrible physical thirst. Christ is not talking about a physical thirst. He is using the analogy of physical thirst to point to a spiritual thirst that is a longing of the soul that is a longing for God. If anyone thirsts, in other words, if anyone longs for God, that's what he's saying. A.W. Tozer, perhaps better than any man, in some of his works has described and got at the heart of this longing, of this thirsting. He writes in one particular instance, God formed us for his pleasure. This is A.W. Tozer. God formed us for his pleasure. And so formed us or created us that we as well as he 
can in divine communion enjoy the sweet and mysterious mingling of kindred personalities. God meant us to see Him and live with Him and draw out life from His smile. But we rejected God. We broke away from God. And so the life of man upon the earth is a life away from the presence, capital P. A life away from the presence. Wrenched loose from that blissful center, which is our right and proper dwelling place. The loss of which is the cause of our unceasing restlessness. Unceasing restlessness, angst, a thirst, a longing for the soul, of the soul, for God Himself and intimate fellowship and communion with God. When the Lord Jesus stands up and He declares, if anyone thirsts, that is the thirst, that is the hungering, that is the longing that He has in view. The second question is this, what is the effect of this thirst? How does it manifest itself? Well, if you've ever been thirsty, you know that the first thing you go looking for is something to quench your thirst. And so, too, when it comes to a spiritual thirst, man has this angst. Man has this restlessness. Man spends his time on earth like a bone out of joint, knowing that there must be something. There has to be something to satisfy the greatest longings and cravings and questions of his soul. And so he looks here, there and everywhere for something to satisfy that thirst. But he looks in all the wrong places. And now let your mind wander back to that story, The Bet, by Anton Chekhov. And let your mind wander wander back to that lawyer spending 15 years sequestered, isolated, cut off from all others. 15 years to immerse himself in the learning, the so-called wisdom, the so-called knowledge of man. 40 years of age with 2 million rubles waiting for him the next day when he departed. All that wisdom, all that knowledge. What's his assessment? What's his conclusion? All is worthless and false. Hollow and deceiving like the mirage. All he is doing is repeating what the preacher declared hundreds of years before him. All he is doing is reiterating what Solomon himself made so clear when he wrote all his vanity and a striving after wind. This coming from a man who had unspeakable wealth. Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. This coming from a man who had unthinkable power. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. This coming from a man who had unimaginable pleasure. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And yet as Solomon sat and reflected, as Solomon sat and thought upon it all, he could conclude, all is vanity and a striving after wind. There's a little commercial 
on the television these days. It caught my attention. It makes me chuckle whenever I see it. I think it's for renewable energy. A little boy in southern Europe standing by the sea in the midst of gale force wind. And he has a little jar that he holds up to the wind and then quickly closes the lid on the jar and turns it tight. Then he takes the train, bike, by foot, I don't know, the, the journey all the way home. And then the scene is of this little home and inside his grandfather or great-grandfather. It looks like there's a hundred candles on the birthday cake and the family's all gathered around. And this little boy walks right up to the table, undoes the lid on the jar, turns it toward the cake and poof! Out go the candles, out go the drapes through the windows, and everybody's hair is a mess and brings a smile to my face because we know it is completely ridiculous, completely impossible to hold up a jar to the wind and to catch the wind in that jar and then open it again to have the wind emerge. That's what Solomon is saying. All is vanity and striving after wind. Good luck with that is what Solomon is saying. You're chasing the wind. You're trying to catch the wind in a jar or even more pathetic. You're trying to catch the wind with a net. That's how people go through life. And that's what the lawyer discovered as he spent that time perusing, going over the great panorama of human history, of human learning, of human achievement and of human wisdom. All is vanity and a striving after wind. If anyone is thirsty... If anyone really perceives their thirst and understands that that thirst cannot be quenched in anything in this world, anything of the material, the physical, the earthly. And yet that is the exact effect of this thirst, is it not? It causes people to run hither, thither and yonder, all in vain, running after the wind. The third question I have for you is this. What is the cause of this thirst? You know it, I know it. It is alienation. It is separation from God. What is the cause of this alienation from God? Scripture makes it perfectly clear. It is our sin. The Lord Jesus makes that abundantly clear back in John chapter 4. Turn back there just for a moment with me. In John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus is on his way to Samaria, or by Samaria rather, And he encounters this woman by the well and he asks the woman for a drink. She's shocked. She's absolutely startled. Verse nine, we find out why. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The Jews do not have any dealings with the Samaritans. And look at what Christ says in verse 10. He answered her. Oh, if you knew the gift of God. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And there's a little bit of a discussion as to the nature of this living water. Finally, verse 15, what does she say? Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so the Lord Jesus gives her that water, does he? No. No. First things first. She must understand her thirst. First things first. She must understand the nature of that water and her need of it. And so what does the Lord Jesus say to her? Yes, go away. You've drunk. Have a great life. 
go call your husband. What's his point? He's taking her down a path she would rather not go. Why? Because she has had five husbands. She is immoral. And with great gentleness, tremendous meekness, and unbelievable love and compassion, the Lord Jesus holds up a mirror to that woman so that she can see herself before the law and before the holiness of God and understand that she is a sinner. But Christ doesn't even leave it at that. They then have a little discussion about where and when and how to worship God. And what is it Christ teaches her through that discussion? That she is an idolater. So not only is she adulterous, not only is she immoral, she is idolatrous. And so the Lord Jesus gently and yet with such truth and clarity, he will not compromise the truth. If she is to drink to her soul satisfaction, she must perceive her need of what it is Christ is offering. And so he takes her down that road gently. She comes face to face with the reality of her own sin and sinfulness. And having come face to face with the reality of her own sin and sinfulness as the cause of her separation from God. She is ready to repent. She is ready to believe. And she is ready for that fellowship. And she is ready to drink of those living waters. Friend, have you ever been down that road? Yes, the Lord Jesus stands and cries. He cries this very day. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. But do you understand what it is you are drinking of? Do you understand the the need of the invitation? Do you understand the, the, the need of the call? Do you understand that the source of that angst within your soul, that it is, yes, due to separation from God, and the reason for that separation is our own sinfulness? But until we have come face to face with the blackness of our own heart and our inability to please God and an awareness that we can never do anything to earn our own salvation or merit God's favor until we are brought to that point. We do not know what it is we are drinking (laughs) and we have absolutely no clue as to why. What is this thirst? It's a longing for God. What is its effect? Oh, it causes men and women to run here, there, and everywhere in a vain pursuit. And what is its cause? Plain and simple. It is sin. The second bite-sized piece I want us to take from Christ's words this morning is this. Let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, that was the first little bit. Here's the second. Let him Come to me and drink. Now, to fully grasp that and to feel the full weight of that, we must in our mind's eye go back to the Feast of Booths. We must in our mind's eye understand what is happening before these people and understand Christ's words in the context of what has just happened in front of them. There they were, just like the first six days, 
expecting to go up to the temple, the seventh, the final, the great day of the feast. As per usual, they've broken into three groups. The one group has prepared the sacrifice. The second group has, has, has gone to retrieve and to fetch the, the, the willow branches to adorn the altar. The third group has gone to the pool of Siloam. And they've gone there, why? To fill a golden pitcher with water. That priest has come back with those people, with that crowd. He has been joined with another priest. They've ascended the altar. The one priest has poured out the wine, the drink offering into the funnel on the east side of the altar. The other priest has poured out the water from that golden pitcher into the funnel on the west side of the altar. And the water has been poured out upon the altar. Why? What's that all about? Well, the Feast of Booths commemorated God's provision of the Israelites during their wandering from Egypt to Canaan. This procession, this custom of retrieving the water from the pool of Siloam and pouring it out upon the altar actually commemorated and celebrated one particular incident in the psyche, in the history of the nation of Israel. And it is what had transpired at a place called Meribah. Meribah. And there, soon after the exodus at Meribah, the people began to what? Grumble. They began to murmur. They began to chaff at the bit. Why? We're thirsty. And they begin to accuse Moses of leading them falsely, leading them to disaster. They begin to accuse God. Why has God brought us out of Egypt simply to perish here in the wilderness? And they test God. In effect, they put God on trial. We're thirsty. We're about to die. What is it exactly you think you are doing? So God speaks to Moses. And God says, oh, and. Please, friend, seek to understand the significance of these words. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, God says to Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. That's often missed. Many of us have known this story since we were small. The story of how Moses struck the rock and the water came forth. And we think that's fantastic. But sadly, we've often missed the most significant Part of the story. God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. By standing on the rock, what is God doing? He is identifying with the rock. Identifying with the rock. And what does God then say to Moses? You shall strike the rock. And so as Moses approaches that rock... Who stands upon the rock, identifying himself with the rock? It is God. Who is Moses striking? God. It is God who bears the penalty for his people. It is God who bears the judgment which those people so righteously deserved at that moment. If anyone is on trial, those people are on trial. And here's what they deserve for their grumbling and their murmuring and their lack of faith and their, such a, their contentious attitude and their accusations leveled at God. They deserve judgment. But here's what you're to do, Moses. 
I'm going to stand there on the rock. And you will take that rod, the same rod by which I struck the land of Egypt in judgment and wrath and fury. And you will take that rod and you will strike the rock. Me, God Almighty, having identified with the rock. And here's what's going to happen, Moses. The water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. Now that's the context for what Christ is saying in John chapter 7. The people know that story. You go back and read the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 or 34, wherever it is. You go and read the Psalms at Psalm 73, 78 that celebrate, that, that, that reflect back on Meribah and what happened there. The people knew the story. They knew the history, the circumstances, everything about it. And they, when they saw that priest with the golden pitcher, with the water from the pool of Siloam, ascend the steps, head to the west of the altar, pour out that water in the funnel upon the altar, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew God had stood upon that rock. Moses had struck that rock and out of that rock had flowed. Rivers of living water. Now, oh, I don't want to send you off on a tangent, but just, just, just insert this here, just quickly, because often we, we get perplexed later when, what, when Moses does what? He strikes the rock again rather than talking to it. I know that's caused many sincere Christians all sorts of, well, why does God get so upset? All he did was strike instead of talk to it. Oh, you have to understand it in the context of Meribah. You have to understand it in the context of that first event. That when Moses disobeys God by not speaking to the rock by strike, but rather by striking it, he is compromising the very holiness of God. And that's why God takes it so seriously and Moses is forbidden from entering into the promised land. But just put that aside for now. Here we have the Lord Jesus there standing in the midst of this throng before the altar. The water has been poured out. The people know exactly what this symbolizes. It goes all the way back to their ancestors who had left Egypt, who had been there before that rock at Meribah. Moses had struck the rock. God having identified with the rock, the water had flowed out. And now the Lord Jesus dares to stand and declare, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, implying what? He is the rock. He is the rock. I am the one who will be struck. I am the one upon whom God's chastisement will fall. I am the one who will bear the judgment. I am the one who will bear the indignation. I am the one who will bear God's punishment in full for your sin. If you are thirsty, if you long for God, and if you are aware of the cause of your thirst, your sinfulness, come to me and drink. The very rock of God, the Lamb of God who will be punished. And from your heart will flow rivers of living water. What does it mean to come? What does it mean to drink? Christ doesn't leave us in any doubt. He tells us, first statement in verse 38, whoever believes in me. What is it to believe? Believe what? Believe the following. Lord, the condemnation was yours. 
that the justification might be mine. The agony was yours, that the victory might be mine. The pain was yours, that the ease might be mine. The stripes were yours, and the healing balm issuing from them mine. The vinegar and gall were yours, that the honey and sweet might be mine. The curse was yours, that the blessing might be mine. The crown of thorns was yours, that the crown of glory might be mine. The death was yours, the life purchased by it, mine. O Lord, you paid the price that I might enjoy the inheritance. That is what it is. That is what it means to come and to drink, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a third portion, bite-sized piece. Carrying on in verse 38, Christ says, As the Scripture has said, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. What are these rivers of living water? John doesn't leave us in any suspense. He tells us, verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit. Just as the Scriptures had promised, just as the Scriptures had prophesied, you take, for example, Isaiah 44, God declares, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. The Spirit had not yet been given in His fullness. Why? Because the rock had not yet been struck in His fullness. This He said about the Spirit, verse 38, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, that is in His fullness. The Spirit was most certainly working in the Old Testament, most certainly working here in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, that is in His fullness, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It is through the crucifixion, resurrection, glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ that Christ now dispenses the Spirit of God at Pentecost out upon His people and by the Spirit of God bringing them into union with Himself, fellowship with God, whereby they become the partakers of the divine nature. My soul, my soul by virtue of the indwelling presence of God's Spirit is overwhelmed by God's holiness. Overwhelmed by His goodness, His truthfulness, His righteousness, His faithfulness. By virtue of the Holy Spirit, I rest in God. As the dearest Father, the greatest good, the closest friend, and the sweetest love. I have meaning in the midst of a chaotic world. Assurance in an uncertain world. Hope in a despairing world. Truth in a deceiving world. Light in a dark world. Happiness in a depressing world. Contentment in an anxious world. And peace in a turbulent world. 
out of my heart flow rivers of living water. Ian Murray expresses this so well. Again, I say this a lot. I'm going to say it again. Listen carefully to this, very carefully to what he is saying and what he is not saying. He writes, the purpose of the gospel. I'm not sure we fully appreciate this. The purpose of the gospel is to bring men into the presence of God. The purpose of the gospel is not forgiveness in and of itself. The purpose of the gospel is not holiness in and of itself. The purpose of the gospel is union with God. And all other blessings are related to that great end. In Paul's own words, the purpose of the gospel is that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the rivers of living water. Fellowship and communion with God himself. Look at the response. It starts in verse 40. They're all standing there before the altar, before the temple. They've just, they've just sung the Hallel. They've just made that cry. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Could it be that this is the answer to their prayer? What's their response? Some say, verse 40, oh, maybe this really is the prophet. Some say, verse 41, maybe this really is the Christ. And some say, verse 41, this can't be the Christ. He comes from Galilee. No prophet and nothing good ever comes out of Galilee. And what's the net result? Verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. There's a division here this morning. We are a divided people. In, in response to Christ's cry, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There are two responses that make a natural division. There are those who believe. There are those who drink. There are those who come and coming they find their soul satisfaction and delight in communion and in union with God himself. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there are those who refuse to believe. I'm going to ask you this morning. I'm going to ask you straight out. Upon hearing these words of Christ echoing through the ages. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Have you responded?